Well, as you are grabbing your seats and the kids are exiting, we'll uh, grab a Bible if you have those. And uh, if you need a Bible, there's some on the chairs there around you, in front of you, by, underneath you. And if you're uh, using one of those, you're going to go to page 1255. For all of us, we're going to Acts chapter 19. So we are picking back up in our We Are the Church series uh, in the book of Acts, and we'll finish this series uh, just before Easter, I believe, uh, just uh, the last Sunday of March is when we're scheduled to finish that. Um, before I unveil here, I've got a little demonstration to, to kick things off. Um, I, uh, I, I feel like I, um, I need to, no, need is too strong. I want to say something about some decisions we've made in our life recently. Um, I've had a few of you, you asked me about it. Yes, we are crazy. Yes, we have lost our mind. Um, <laughs> we, uh, we do have a two-week-old as of today, JJ, in the house, and we do have an eight-week-old boxer puppy in the house as of yesterday. So um, just so you don't lose confidence in, in your pastor, here's our thinking on that. Our oldest, Karis, is 10. Uh, as a married couple in almost 12 years of marriage, we've never had a dog in our house of any kind. We've both grown up with them, but our kids have been begging, and I've been the one saying no, no, no. And uh, Karis is 10, so we figure, well, that window's closing soon. And, you know, of course, all the good things that come with that, the, the companionship, but the responsibility side of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then we thought, well, it's kind of crazy having a newborn in the house and a puppy, but, um, you know, maybe it'll help with the transition for the girls with JJ being in the house. And it also helps um, up the ratio of males versus females in my household, because um, that was always a condition. If we got a, a dog, it would have to be a male uh, for my sake. And then um, the last thing I would say is we just thought it's going to be chaotic anyway. We'd rather get all the chaos out of the way now, and then maybe we can kind of ease into some routine here in the next couple weeks. And just in case you're wondering, I'm getting great sleep. Thank you very much for, for wondering about that. Uh, Lindsay's getting about what you would think. Um, so uh, I do believe that JJ has, has several times slept from 12 a.m. to 6 a.m., but I may have slept through one of those. <laughs> okay, so the deal that Lindsay and I have with, with the last two kids was she's on the baby, I'm on all the other kids. Okay, so I mean, it's really not that fair if you think about it. I've got three now and a puppy and she's got one baby. <laughs> all right. The, the puppy did not howl last night, slept through the night. We were great. All right. So moving on, done with my life here. So we're back in the book of Acts here. And um, here's what I've got up here. Part of the reason I told you all that is because originally I wanted to put some food coloring in a bowl. And instead I'm stuck with cocoa mix because I forgot the food coloring at home with everything that was going on as I was trying to get out the door. All right, so here's what I've got. I've got some cocoa and water here. I've got some clean water here. This is just to wash my hands when I'm done, so ignore that one. Here I've got a rag. It's a dry rag. Okay, now, now this rag has nothing in it at the moment, and, and there's no magic trick coming, by the way. Um, but if I were to just put this rag in the clear water, the, the, the rag would absorb the clear water, right? And it would really make no impact on the water. It would absorb the water, right? But if I do this, and I put the clean white rag in the cocoa water, that rag is now what we call saturated, 
right? It, there's no more room in that rag for anything else to be absorbed. In fact, because it is saturated, when I lift it up, things come out of it, right? It, the, the saturation, it, the, the, the water, the cocoa water is just overflowing out of it, right? Because the rag is saturated. When something's saturated, that means it can't hold anything else, and so it starts to overflow. And so if I take this saturated rag and I then bring it over to this water here, the clean water, and I, and I just let the saturation out, and I just put that in there. You see the impact that this saturated rag had on the, the water around it, right? The saturation of the rag impacted the water and changed this clear water, okay? So the, the, the impact is that the saturation, that's the key, is overflowing into an area that has not previously been impacted by what has been saturated. Here's where I'm going with this swarm. Just like this rag, we've got to have lives that are gospel saturated. Not, not saturated with cocoa like the rag, but gospel saturated. In other words, it's got to be so in us, it's got to be so, it, we've got to be so in tune and so in sync with the impact of the gospel mates that it flows out of us, that we can't even help it, so that it disrupts a gospel deprived, the clear water, culture. So a gospel saturated life disrupts a gospel deprived culture. In other words, your life, if it's been impacted by the gospel, should impact the culture around you. And when we go to the book of Acts this morning and pick back up, we're picking back up with the Apostle Paul, who has been traveling around to areas of, of the uh, modern day Turkey, uh, where he is taking the gospel message to people who have not previously had it. And then he spends time with the people there. And what we're going to see this morning is the type of impact he has on the people there. And now we've seen him, we've seen him have a good impact and we've seen him shape people's lives. But today you're going to see a different type of impact, more of a disrupting type of impact to the surrounding culture. And so this morning, what I want us to, to focus on is that a gospel-saturated life disrupts a culture that is gospel-deprived. And so let's take a look. We're going to be summarizing a lot because it's kind of a long passage, which is why I highly encourage you to grab one of those reading plans or get the one that we put on Facebook so you can read ahead because like next week, we're going we're gonna to pull a sermon out of, out of two chapters worth of content. So we're not going to cover all of that content, um, but I would highly encourage you to read it because there's actually a person who, who, who is sitting under preaching for so long that he falls asleep and dies because he falls out of a window. And that was the Apostle Paul preaching, so I think I'm doing okay. All right, so you got to read that because we're not going to preach on that because I'm, I wouldn't dare preach a sermon on someone getting falling asleep during a sermon, right? But you got to read that so you know that's going on. But anyway, read that because we're going to summarize a lot this morning. So here's what we've got before we jump in and read. Apostle Paul's traveling around. He goes to a region called Macedonia. And, and, and in this region, he decides he's been there for a while. Now he wants to make his way back to Jerusalem. So he's starting to make his way back to Jerusalem. Okay, and then and after he goes to Jerusalem, then from there he wants to go to Rome. Okay, so as he's still in this town of Ephesus in the region of Macedonia, he, he finds himself in this situation. Verse 23 is where we'll start. 19, verse 23. 
At that time, a great disturbance took place concerning the way. Now, you remember that, that Christians were not called Christians in the Bible. They were called the way. And the, one or, uh, the, the three times that they're called Christians, at least two of those are derogatory. And they were called Christians by the people who opposed them. Oh, you're a Christian? You're a little Christ follower? They were being mocked. That was not Jesus's description of his followers, nor was it the followers of Jesus's description of themselves. They called themselves disciples. They called themselves followers, or oftentimes they referred to themselves, Luke calls them the way. So a, at the time, a great disturbance took place concerning the way. So concerning Paul and the followers of Jesus. Verse 24, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought a great deal of business to the craftsmen. He gathered these together along with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that our prosperity comes from this business. So in Ephesus or just outside of this town of Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple of Artemis or Diana, depending on what side you're referring to her, Greek versus Roman. Temple of Artemis, temple of Diana, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It brought in a great deal of people to the town of Ephesus. Ephesus was a town that many people would travel through because if you were trading or if you were traveling, this is a town you'd go through. So this temple was there and it was in a strategic placement for all these travel, travelers all throughout this region of, of ancient Asia to be able to come and worship the, the goddess Diana or Artemis. And so, of course, there, there with the temple was businesses tied to the temple. And we meet this guy who's, who's a silversmith. He made idols, statues of Artemis, of Diana, that he would then sell for people to go and worship. Think about going to Disneyland or Disney World, and you come home with some souvenirs, some, some statues of your Mickey Mouse. And I'm not calling them idols. I'm just, just making a comparison here, right? And you come home, and, and you got this little statue of Mickey Mouse or this little stuffed animal, because that, there's people who are making money off of your trip to Disney World or Disneyland as if it didn't cost enough already. And so that you would then be able to take that home with you and remember it. Maybe even your kids will play with it and, you know, reenact some scenes or something like that, right? So they were doing that with idols, right? Here's, a, here's an idol for you so you can take that and you can worship Diana at your own home as well when you can't make it to the temple. You can go worship Artemis where, wherever you are. Here's that. So there was business tied to it, okay? The disturbance came up because this man has noticed something. Here we go. Verse 26. He continues to say to these people, and you see and hear that this Paul has persuaded and turned away a large crowd, not only in Ephesus, but in practically all of the province of Asia by saying that gods made by hands are not gods at all. We're coming back to that. There is danger not only that this business of ours will come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be regarded as nothing. And she whom all the province of Asia and the world worship will suffer the loss of her greatness. Now we're gonna camp out mostly in these verses here, but the rest of the story goes like this. So a riot starts up in the town of Ephesus. All these people start surrounding this, this chant of, of, of great is Artemis, great is Artemis, because Demetrius has stirred up all these people and gotten them all anxious and all scared. And, and they're, they're concerned that their whole way of life is gonna change and their business is gonna be affected. So they all gather in town 
town and they're, they're causing a riot. Now, now they bring in some, some, some of Paul's companions and they bring them into the middle of this riot. Now, it doesn't tell us what they're doing to them. It just says they bring them in. So you can imagine now you've got these two followers of the way, these followers of Christ caught in the middle of this riot as people are chanting, a great is Artemis. And Paul, seeing this from a distance, wants to go and do something about this, say something, but his, his friends will not let him because they know he'll be harmed. This crowd just continues to escalate and escalate. At one point, some Jewish people push one guy forward named Alexander, and, and they, they think maybe it was about the Jewish, maybe the riot was about the Jews, so they push Alexander forward so Alexander can give an, an explanation. But then as soon as the rioting crowd realizes he's a Jew, no, they, they dismiss him. That's not what they're, they're there for. There's a great line somewhere in that story there toward the end where it says, and some were chanting and and gathering and they didn't even know why they were chanting and gathering. And isn't that just mob mentality right there? You get a group together, everybody's excited and they start chanting. Then you got some people mixed in there who are joining in, but they have no clue why or what they're even joining into. That's the chaos and the confusion that's going on. The end of that story is that a, 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 a person who works for the town, a city official basically comes up and gets the crowd quiet and says, listen guys, you're about to get us all in trouble. You're about to get the Roman guards in on this because of this riot. We're in jeopardy here. And he says, look, if there's an issue here with Paul and between Demetrius, let them take it to the court and deal with it there. But you guys need to disperse because the Roman guards about to get involved here and we're all gonna be in trouble if they do that. And they disperse and that's how the story ends. All right, lots of chaos and confusion. We're gonna spend most of our time here. And so as we think about a gospel-saturated life disrupting a gospel-deprived culture, here's the first thing that we see. Paul, and, and Demetrius describes Paul as this Paul persuaded and turned away a large crowd by saying that gods made by hands are not gods at all. And so here's the first thing we wanna look at. A gospel-saturated life speaks what is true. So you've got Paul, now he's traveling around and he is proclaiming the message of God about Jesus and about the one true living God. And part of that message as he's around all these Gentile people who worship other gods is those are not gods at all. Those are not true and living gods. In fact, we saw in Acts 17 how he described these these statues and these idols as you made them by your own hands. And then you covered them with silver and gold and then you set them up and then you want to worship them and ask them to direct your life. You see, it sounds kind of absurd, doesn't it? I make something, I I, I make it beautiful and then I set it up and then after I made it, then I surrender and submit my life to that which I've made. So backwards. And so Paul has been trying to point this out, but he says there's a true and a living God. And the true and the living God is the one who makes all things. We saw him in this expanded message in Acts 17 where he's talking to the Gentiles in Athens and he says, look, the God of the universe, the one who created all things, he starts there. And he talks about how this God created all things and then he sent Jesus and he's calling people to repentance, to turn from worshiping these other gods and instead to turn toward the true and living God. This is the kind of message that Paul has been preaching. He's speaking what is true. And the word gets to Demetrius and Demetrius is noticing that his bottom line is getting affected because people now who are being converted, who are hearing the gospel and are responding and are turning away from those idols are no longer in need of Demetrius's services. No longer are they going to Demetrius to get their silver idol of Artemis because they now worship the true and living God. And he's noticed that his, his bottom line is starting to drop. And he's going to do something about that. And so Paul, living out this gospel-saturated life, disrupts 
the gospel-deprived culture. And one of the ways that he was doing that is by speaking what is true. Now, I need to say something. Because when I say that, I cannot even assume that we all believe the same thing is true. And we live in a society and in a culture that it is perfectly acceptable now to, to have one thing that you believe is true and then one thing that you believe is true and they can be completely opposite. But the way we handle that in culture now is we say, if it's true for you, it's, it's good. It works for you, it works. If it's true for you, it's good. It works, it works, right? And so then we, we, we accept that both of these things is true. And so one way you might hear people say that is all these different religions, they're basically worshiping the same God and they're not. Okay, so, so Allah, the God that the Muslims worship, is not the same God as the God of the Bible. Major difference, Allah, one God, the Father, if they even call him that, and he is authoritarian. The Bible, one God, but three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's a different type of relationship there. Not the same God. Buddhism, well, we all kind of worship the same God. No, Buddhism merges creation and creator and, and blurs the distinction between creation and creator and says that, that God is in everything and everything is God. And so we have a little bit of God in us and we've just got to tap into that and tap into the universe. If you hear people talking about the universe did this, that's, that's a form of Eastern religion or pantheism that believes that the universe is the eternal being. That's not the same God that the Bible preaches. Because the Bible starts out with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, so Christianity and the, way the Bible teaches and Buddhism can't line up. I can keep going and, and, and going through, but let me just throw one more out there. Buddhism again, it, it, it's an easy comparison. Buddhism says, when it comes to evil and harm, that's not real it's, it's a more of an illusion. It's more of what you're accepting. But if you can just kind of connect more with, with, um, the, 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 with God, the divine, it'll pull you kind of out and it'll help you, uh, uh, you know, like moving towards nirvana. If, if you can just kind of get a little bit more connected, you'll see that what you're calling pain and accepting as pain and evil is really not that at all. It's an illusion that you need to free yourself from. Okay, that's the, the I'm, I'm, very, I'm doing a disservice here. I'm not an expert in any of these. Okay, but then Christianity says evil's real. Sin is legit and people act in sin and they hurt other people and God judges sin and God deals with evil. Okay, put those two together. One says evil's not real, it's just your mind. One says, no, evil's real and God's gonna deal with it. Can you put those two side by side and say that they are both true at the same time? only if you decide you want to be illogical. Okay, you can't. It makes no sense. Instead, what we're doing is we're saying, I don't want to offend you. I, I just, I, I don't want to assume that I've got it figured out. Humility is great. You, you shouldn't assume that you've got everything figured out. But there are some things that, that you've got to, to come to some conclusions on and you've got to stand on those things. You've got to speak what is true. And listen, when we speak what is true, it's going to offend. But make no mistake, where the offense should come from is from the content of the truth that we speak, not from my personality, not from the manner in which I speak that truth, because you all know people, you have a friend, a brother, a sister, crazy uncle, aunt, who they speak what's true, but they speak it in ways that are crazy. 
and they speak in ways that turn people off and offend people because of the way they say it. It's no, you don't have an issue with what they say, but it's the way they say it that, that comes off. Listen, when we speak what's true, without backing away from the truth and, and doing this, well, okay, I understand that may work for you. If we speak what is true, it's going to offend. But we need to make sure that what's offending is the content of that truth. When we say, listen, only people who trust in Christ are brought into the family of God. That's what John says in John chapter one, verse, verse 12. He says, to those who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. So if someone says to you, we're all children of God, if you have the opportunity in that conversation, you just say, well, what do you mean by children of God? What do you mean by children of God? And if they say, well, we've all been created by God. Cool, go with that. If they say, well, God loves all of us and he brings us all into his family. No, 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 he doesn't say that. To those who believe in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. We need to clarify that. And there's a way to clarify that without being offensive. But you can speak the truth and let the truth offend. You can say, you know, that's not actually what the Bible teaches. And here's what John 1 verse 12 says. To everyone who received him, that is who believed in his name, to those he gave the right to be called children of God. You've just spoken what is true. You've told them, no, what you've said is not, uh, not what I believe and it's not what I think is right. And in fact, what you just told them is that God's family is exclusive. When everything else in the world is saying that, that religion should be inclusive, that everybody gets in, every, whereas the Bible teaches, no, everybody doesn't get in. There's one way to get in. Jesus in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. If anyone comes to the Father, he comes through me. You're saying, Buddha don't cut it for you. Muhammad is not the one you should be following. You're, you're, you're saying, you may think you're the smartest cookie in this, in, this, in this world and that you can figure things out on your own, but that's not what God says. You speak what's true and you're telling people that this I don't agree with because the Bible says this, okay? That's gonna disrupt a gospel-deprived culture because you're telling people that, no, I believe you're wrong. And it's okay to tell people they're wrong, absolutely but it's all in the way we speak it. You see, if we're gospel saturated, what that should do to us is actually humble us because we realize were it for the grace of God, I wouldn't even know Christ. Were it for the grace of God, I would not even be in the relationship with the Lord that I'm in. And everyone comes through that same grace. Everyone requires that same grace. There's no room for me to boast because if I start boasting, that's pretty foolish because I'm saying, well, I needed a savior to die for my sin and I'm proud of that. There's no room to boast in that. Everyone comes to the cross in the same way. We've gotta be, through the grace of God, receive Christ by faith. And so when we, when we do that though, what that does is it humbles us. It changes the way we approach others who are not believers in Christ, who don't share our views, because guess what? We realize I'm not better than you. Word for the grace of God, I would be you. I would be where you are. I was where you are. See, sometimes church folk and people who have been believers for a long time forget where we came from. And we forget that word for the grace of God, we would still be left in our sin. Even if we grew up in a church culture, we would still be left in our sin because just going to church doesn't guarantee knowing God.
And so we've, we're humbled if we're gospel saturated, the gospel is in, in growing deep roots in our lives. We're humbled. We approach people with that same humility and we are compelled by the love of God to approach people who are caught up in sin, lifestyles of sin, different beliefs. We pursue them. We open our lives and our homes to them so that they can get close, so they can have access to us, so that they can receive hospitality from us, welcoming strangers in, so that they can be exposed to a life that's been transformed by the gospel. So we speak what is true, and it disrupts a gospel-deprived culture. All right, we keep going. In verse 27, he says, there is danger. This is still Demetrius talking. There is danger not only that this business of ours, making silver idols, will come into disrepute. And we're going to stop there for a minute. So now he's focused on his business. And so the other thing we see is a gospel-saturated life threatens the way of life of a gospel-deprived life. The gospel-saturated life threatens the way of life of a gospel-deprived life. So Demetrius, he's concerned about his way of life, his, his way of making money, his way of living. He's saying, look, this business is even going to come in disrepute. It's going to impact the business. And listen, as you live out a gospel-saturated life in your schools, in your workplaces, in your communities, in your family, wherever it is you're going, if, if you're just like this rag and it just, it's just going off you because you're saturated, then what it should do is it should disrupt and and in that, it's going to threaten people. And, and, and I don't mean threaten like you're going to like hold them up by their neck. And, I mean, it's, it's going to, they're going to see it. They're going to experience. And it's going to go after the very way they're living their life that is opposed to the gospel. So that means you're, 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 let's take a student in a classroom and all your friends are going to get together and you're going to go and you're going to drink at parties on the weekend. You're going to get drunk. You're going to get wasted. And, and you maybe decide you're going to go to that party, but you're not going to get drunk and wasted. And so you're there and all your friends are getting, this works with adults too, by the way. You get drunk and they're getting wasted, but here you are, you're not. You're not breaking the law of the land by drinking underage and your friends are. And they're going beyond that and they're, they're getting wasted, which goes in beyond what the Bible says uh, we should allow a, a substance to influence us when we lose control of ourselves and let a substance control us. And so here you are, you're able to engage people at this party if you're there and they're not. Guess how they're feeling? They're going to notice that if, if they're even able to notice, right? They're going to notice that and it's going to threaten them. They're going to feel the guilt that they should feel for the sin that they're living in. Right? Or, or take someone else who's, who's living a lifestyle of sin, openly sin, and they, 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 uh, maybe they know it, maybe they don't, but you, then you're, you're not living in that same way, but you're letting them come up against your life and you're letting them have access to you and they see the difference. Let's say you're ruling your home in, in a different way than maybe they are. And so two dads are hanging out and one dad is just grinding his kids with his words and harshness. And you... You're still speaking truth to your kids. You're still disciplining them. But you're doing so in a way that's gentle, with respect, and with love. Guess what's going to happen? Hopefully what's going to happen is the dad who's, who's doing the harshness and grinding the kids is going to have light shed on the darkness. Because that's what light does. Light takes what's dark and it illuminates it. And a gospel-saturated life should be that light that is able to go into the darkness. Darkness does not come to light. Light goes to darkness and, and then illumines the darkness. And as it sheds light, it should, it should threaten the lifestyles that are opposed to that kind of, li uh, that kind of light. 
right? So, so maybe that means you, you've got to continuously work at bringing people in because here's the question I got to put before you. How can people who are living in darkness, maybe they know it, maybe they don't, how can people who are living in darkness be exposed to the light if those people who have the light and whose lives have been impacted by the light keep them at a distance? Don't share hospitality with them. Don't allow them into their homes. Don't allow them into their life. Don't have prolonged periods of time where they're interacting with these people and befriending them so that they are then exposed to light. How are marriages going to be, be uh, impacted if biblical godly marriages that are bearing the gospel at the heart of it aren't around marriages that aren't bearing the gospel at the heart of it? How are they going to influence the, the marriages that need to be influenced if they're not going to let each other get around one another? We have got to be gospel saturated in the midst of a gospel deprived culture and be willing to go where darkness is and let that darkness be illumined by light. You cannot catch sin. You can be influenced and you've got to be wise about that. And so if you're going to be influenced to sin, if they're going to be stronger than you, then no, don't do that. But instead, you, you've got to be able to figure out how do I let my parenting that is gospel saturated be seen and be evident by someone else who has no concept of that. I've got to let them in. I've got to let them see me parent. I've got to let them have access to my life when it may mean you, you got to be uncomfortable letting someone you disagree with in your home. And it's okay. It's okay. Because a gospel saturated life threatens the way of life of a gospel-deprived life. You've got to be able to let that light illumine the darkness. And so Paul, because he lived among this group of people, lived a gospel-saturated life, and now Demetrius is going, it's going to, it's going to impact our, our business. I'm going to keep us moving here. Last thing we're going to see here is the second part of verse 27. There's danger not only that this business of ours will come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be regarded as nothing. And she whom all the province of Asia and the world worship will suffer the loss of her greatness. And so now he's more concerned. People are going to stop worshiping her. A gospel-saturated life threatens the beliefs of a gospel-deprived life. It threatens the beliefs of a gospel-deprived life because not all beliefs are true. Just because someone sincerely holds to that belief doesn't make it true. They can sincerely hold to that belief and be sincerely wrong. And some people think, and maybe this is you, you think, but it's arrogant to think that we have the truth and other people don't. It's not arrogant if God has revealed that truth about himself. And here's what I would challenge you. My, my bet is you've probably not read the Bible, if that's where you stand. And so I would challenge you first to go read the Bible. And then the other thing I would challenge you is, is are you upholding just basic rules of logic? Everyone has to abide by basic rules of logic. That, that I'm going I'm to call that a chair because it's a chair. We're all going to agree that that's a chair. That's called the law of identity. That's how a, a culture can communicate because of, I, we're calling that a chair, right? But now if we say that's a chair and then you come along and say, no, nah, I'm going to call that a dingle hopper. <laughs> Little mermaid. Right? Now we can't communicate. There's, it's just not going to work, right? So the law of identity. Okay? We also have to have, um, we have, to have co coherence in what we believe. In other words, it has to be consistent with logic. So what I was saying earlier is you can't have two sets of beliefs that contradict one another be true at the same time. That's called the law of non-contradiction. Basic law of, of logic. Everybody operates by this, whether you acknowledge it or not. You, you cannot have two things that are opposite be true at the same time. It is illogical. 
And so if you are someone who is saying, or you know someone who is saying, hey, you know, that's true for them and that's true for me, um, that, that, that cannot work if you're willing to be consistent in logic. And maybe you're willing to throw logic out the door and say religion doesn't adhere to logic. Then we can't, we can't talk. There's just, that, that everybody has to adhere to logic. And Christianity is the only worldview, and I challenge you to test this, the only belief system that holds up to logic. So even as you read the Bible and you test these other worldviews, just test them what they believe and see if it holds up to, are they claiming two opposite things to be true at the same time? And if you've got two worldviews competing, two belief systems competing, and they both say different things, test what they say. Is evil real? You say, I don't feel pain. Okay, get your, your wife or your husband to come punch you in the face. You will feel pain in that moment. And then you knew, know that that worldview is not legit in that moment. I'm making light of it a little bit, but I want you to see the simplistic nature of logic that's involved in there. A gospel-saturated life threatens the beliefs of a gospel-deprived life. Listen, you are going to come in opposition with people who believe differently than you. It is inevitable, but don't back away from that. Move toward that. And here's how we can do that. Ask them, what do you believe? Ask more questions than you speak. We'll do a lot better that way anyway. Just ask, what do you believe? Tell me what you believe about God. Maybe they bring it up themselves. Well, tell me why you believe that. Where do you get that? And just listen and listen. And you may not have an answer for them today. And that's okay, you don't have to answer, but here's what you're learning. You're learning how they think and how they see the world. You're learning what's valuable to them so that then you can be praying about, God, how do I bring the gospel to that? How, how can the way I live my life, I'm living a gospel-saturated life, how can it shed light on that? Right? But instead what we do is we don't see people as people. We see them as enemies. We see them as objects. We see them as projects to be one. And so then we move at them with a pre, pre-recorded script and, and, and with some assumptions about what they believe. And then we start interacting with them about that. That's not gospel saturation. That's pride. That's, that's something else compelling you. But gospel saturation says, I want to know who you are. I want to know what's valuable to you. I, wanna, I want to interact with you in a way that's valued and respectable. But we can agree to disagree on this. I can accept you and still disagree with you on this. We have got to figure that out. You can accept people, show them value and respect and disagree with them at the same time. Because if agreement was the only thing that we required to get along, no one in this room would get along because we don't agree on everything. It won't take long for us to figure out where we disagree on stuff. Agreement on everything is not the requirement for living peaceably, living gospel-saturated lives among one another. Instead, we can accept people, show them love and value and dignity, regardless of whether they're living their life in sin. And we can approach them with humility because we are impacted by sin as well. And were it not for the grace of God, we would not be where we are. And then we can disagree with them. And, it, and, and a gospel-saturated life will threaten the beliefs. And I hope what you're hearing me say is, is the way you live your life should overflow so that light is shining in the darkness. A gospel-saturated life disrupts a gospel-deprived culture. Listen, Paul lived in Ephesus for around three years. And he's toward the end of his three years as we see him. And we see the impact that he has made. Now, if you go into chapter 20, you're gonna see the impact he made with the church as he visits with the elders. And we talked about that a few weeks ago in our church checkup series, week number two. But you see he makes an impact on the people, the believers, but also the way he's living his life is, is making an impact in the culture around him. Here's the question. 
for those of you who have trusted in Christ, here's the question. If you were left somewhere for three years, maybe you've worked somewhere for three years, you've certainly been in your family for three years, most of you, or you've been in a, in a classroom or among a peer group for three years. If you were there for three years, would it make a difference when you got pulled out and left? Would there be any difference? Would the gospel saturation that's coming out of you, if it's coming out of you, would it have made a difference in the culture around you in three years' time? Would, would people notice the presence of God exhibit it through you if you left? Or would they say, nice guy, nice girl, gonna miss him. Would they feel that void that comes with being the presence of God in the midst of darkness? That's the question some of you need to ask. And, and, if, and if not, if, if, if you can't say, look, my family's not impacted by the way I live my life. I'm a believer in Christ. I, I believe I'm saved. I, I'd like to think that I have a gospel-saturated life. My family's not been impacted. I don't see any impact there. My workplace, nobody really knows. And you gotta ask the question, why is that? Why? What, what's holding you back? What is it that's keeping you? Others of you this morning, maybe, maybe, I, maybe you're here this morning and you would not call yourself a Christian. You, you would not call yourself a follower of Christ. You've not trusted in Jesus, and I'm glad you're here. And I hope you keep coming. And here's what I would say to you this morning. I hope you've experienced this. I hope what you, you have, made, and maybe that's why you're here, but I hope you have experienced someone whose life is just so markedly different from yours and everything else you've seen. They, they have this joy that, that's genuine, and you don't know why. And they have this peace that just makes absolutely no sense and you don't know why. And they just treat people in a way that is so different. It's got respect even when they disagree. I hope that has been your experience. And if that has been the case, here's what I think you're experiencing. You're experiencing people who have, who have because they, they have trusted in Christ and they've received this new type of spiritual life that God alone gives, they're infused with this genuine type of joy that comes only with knowing that you've been brought into the family of God when you didn't deserve it. And I think what you're experiencing is people who have this peace that makes no sense. They're at peace and they're able to have that peace even in the midst of turmoil because they're at peace with God. A peace with God that only comes through the gospel knowing that Christ stood in my place and took the wrath of God for my sin so that I would not be under the wrath of God. That's how a person is made at peace with God because Christ stood in their place. They have a life and a vitality to them that you've never seen before. And that's because that's the same type of life, the spiritual type of life that Jesus gives, the same type he rose from the dead to, to secure and the same type of spiritual life that he now lives, he gives to people who trust in him so that they would be able to live out that same life. I hope that's what you've experienced because that's what God offers to people who are impacted and infected by sin, which is every single one of us. And he doesn't ask you to perform. He doesn't ask you to impress him. You can't. None of us can. Instead, he says, I know you are going to continue to try, continue to try, and never reach the standard because sin keeps us from doing that. But because of God's love that compels him, he sent Jesus to come and live the life that you and I fail to live and can't do, but he, 100% perfect obedience, lived that life, then stood in our place, taking the judgment and the punishment that we deserve at, at, in his death so that we would not have it. He rose from the dead, overcoming sin and death. He's more powerful than those things, and he has a new type of spiritual life. And now God gives that life to people who repent. They stop trusting in what they're trusting in. 
themselves, idols, being good enough, whatever, and they turn from that. And in turning from that, you trust in Christ, his death and resurrection on your behalf. And then you can know the things that perhaps you've been exposed to. So let's take a moment. A gospel-saturated life disrupts a gospel-deprived culture. Let's ask God what he's got for us. And we're just gonna sit in silence just for a moment as we go before him. Father, you didn't send Jesus to die for sinners so that they would be saved and then sit back and say, hey, trust in Christ, I'll see you when we get there. Instead, God, part of your plan and your, your wisdom was to save people, that those people then would continue to live their life and be the light and the presence of God among people who need to know the light and the presence of God. And yet, God, we're people who I, we idolize comfort, we idolize security, we idolize protection. And so we, we put up these walls and we think that we're doing ourselves good and we're, we're growing spiritually and yet all the while we've cut off the very world, the very, the very people who we were once in that group and yet someone went beyond those barriers to say, here's the gospel, here's what God has done for you, here's how his love has been shown to you. God, would you show each one of us where our lives are not saturated by the gospel and then stir up our affections and our love for Christ that we might love him and desire to know him even more? And then, God, just let, let that love that, that of Christ that's in us just overflow around us so that people see the difference that when they're living lives that are opposed to you, God, that, that even if we don't say a word, that, that, that the light is shining in the darkness, and God, you're using that. And then when the opportunities come, we can say the words that they need to hear so that they can respond and believe. God, would you show us where we're not doing that? And then, God, would you increase that in our lives? And then as a church community, would you increase that for us as a church in this community that we would be so saturated with the gospel, that we'd be a group of people so saturated with the gospel that we can't help but it's overflowing and that it's just coming and impacting every area of our lives and our workplaces aren't the same because of that. God, let, let us be the people that are influencing the cultures that we are in and not other people influencing them. Let your light and your presence go forth from us. And then, God, for those who maybe this morning they're here and they're, they're, they're listening to these things and they, they've never trusted in Christ, God, I pray that you would open their eyes today and their heart, their mind, maybe overcome some obstacles that they've had so to help them understand that it's not that you're trying to catch us every time we mess up. You know we mess up. You don't even have to try to catch us. You know it all. And yet, still knowing all of that, you still sent Jesus to be a savior for people who needed a savior because you wanted people to know you. So God, I pray for, for, for belief this morning. Here in just a moment as we dismiss, we're gonna um, have a few folks available for prayer. If you would like someone to pray with, if you have anything specific or in general, just let them know what you'd like to pray about and they'd be glad to, to pray with you. So if you're part of that prayer team, would you just go ahead and make your way in the room to where you'd like to be? 
And so, Father, as we, as we dismiss from here now, as we go from here, would you, would you saturate our hearts and our minds and our lives and, and the things that are impure and the things that aren't of you, ring them out, remove them from us, and instead, let us absorb that which is of you and that which is of the Spirit. And then, God, let that light shine in the darkness. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Amen. See you guys next week.